Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. Also want to let you know that we're sponsored by Quip Electric Toothbrushes. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you get your first refill pack of brushes for free. And Jim... There's no organization on earth who wants to get the bad taste out of their mouth more right now than your beloved New York Jets. I'm sorry that Monday Night Football did not turn out the way you hoped last night. Yeah, yeah. I'm collecting things, promises that turned out to not be true. And right up next to trade wars are easy to win is going to be Adam Gase is an offensive genius. I'll stop it there. Otherwise, I'll just rant for the entire podcast. All right. I'll let you uh, get your breathing under control here and your heart rate and... uh, the Bears barely avoided being 0-2. I'll take it and run to next week. We get the Redskins, and so they have to beat the Redskins because losing— That's what you got to buy, me. <laughs> I wish. I hope so. You know, if you lose to the Redskins, you never hear the end of it around here, so you got to be careful. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our good martini now, Jim. And for that, we go to the response to something horrific. Over to Real Clear Politics. The details were too horrific to ignore, at least for some. Authorities were called to the Illinois home of the late Indiana abortionist Ulrich George Klopfer on Friday evening. There, according to the local sheriff's department, law enforcement discovered more than 2,000 fetal remains. Each was medically preserved. The coroner took charge of the evidence. The Will County Sheriff's Office released a statement noting the discovery. National and local press ran the gruesome story. In the aftermath, however, the leader of one of the cities where Klopfer performed thousands of abortions, who also happens to be running for president, has not said a word. Emails and calls to South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign have gone unanswered since Saturday when RealClearPolitics contacted the municipal office of the mayor on Monday and aid directed RealClearPolitics back to the campaign where even more requests for comment received no response. That's not the good martini. The good martini is the response from uh, the Republican members of Congress, the governor, and now the White House. Congress members Jackie Walorski and Jim Banks want a federal investigation. So do Senators Todd Young and Mike Braun. And now Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb is also on board. Mike Pence, to no surprise, is also uh, getting on board. The White House echoing that sentiment, confirming to Real Clear Politics that the administration will call for a full federal investigation, even likening this story to the atrocities committed by Dr. Kermit Gosnell. So, Jim, good on the administration for wanting to get into this. It's maddening that somebody who would have 2,000 fetal remains in their possession wouldn't draw more outrage across the political spectrum. But hopefully we get more answers, and uh, we'll see if Mayor Pete ever gives an answer here. One thing that comes to mind is we were assured that Kermit Gosnell was this rarity that, that he was one of a kind, that this was some sort of really uh, unbelievable set of circumstances and that by no means was he reflective uh, of those who choose to spend their careers doing abortions. Well, now there's two. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is macabre. This is uh, disturbing. Somebody, you know, characterized, were these, were these like trophies of his of some way? What was he doing with all of these? And I think it's time for a whole bunch of very tough questions for uh, Mayor Boudet Edge. Apparently, there was a dispute about the licensing and, and you know appropriate medical uh, review of where he was doing these sorts of things. And Pete Boudet Edge went to the mattresses 
to defend this guy and to say, no, 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 I'm so disturbed by this anti-abortion right-wing extremism, yada, yada, yada. Look, when the guy you defended has more than 2,000 fetuses in jars in his basement, you probably should sit in the corner and think about that for a while and start thinking about what, what made you so certain that this guy was one of the good guys? What made you so sure that he couldn't be involved in something like this? It is deeply frustrating. This is the sort of thing, you know, like there is this airbrushed, soft focus mentality of the abortion issue. Choice, you know, everyone, you know, women's health. People don't want to talk about what it actually does because when you do, they are repelled by it. They, they, it hits something deep within them that makes them say, this is not something I can, I can uh, justify. This is not something I can morally abide. Something terribly morally wrong is going on here. And this should not be as legal as it is. We need at the very least to put some sort of restrictions. And we should be reviewing the kind of people who do this because they're not always good people. Um, but uh, we'll see if things shake out of this. I'm glad the administration wants to investigate. I'm glad that this is, you know, people are kind of sounding the alarm uh, of what this man was, what he represented, and whether there might be other abortion doctors out there like him. And so uh, good for this. Hopefully we'll get more solid answers on this. Uh, I didn't think Pete Buttigieg was going to be the uh, Democratic nominee to begin with, but this is the sort of thing that should uh, subject him to a great deal of uncomfortable scrutiny for a long time. All right, let's talk about something much, much happier, and that's Quip. The easiest way to ease back into your routine, whether you're back to school now or maybe you're off to college or maybe you're at a new job and just everything's got a little bit of a different schedule going on, Get into a routine and get it going every day as quickly as possible. Simplify the mornings and evenings with a simpler electric toothbrush from Quip. It's got timed sonic vibrations that cover the basics, meaning of every part of your mouth, and takes just two minutes twice a day. And the pulses tell you when to brush. It's fantastic. The mirror mount puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you just put it right up there on your mirror. You'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. And the lightweight, compact design means you can bring it along with you on any quick getaway or even long family vacation. So enjoy sleeping in, then ease back into the swing of things with a smile. Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. There's a built-in two-minute timer which pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and when to switch from top to bottom. It helps you clean your whole mouth evenly. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5, and a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by more than 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. There's so many reasons to love Quip. Uh, Jim got the trial Quip years ago now for the three martini lunch, and then I asked for one because he liked it so much. As you know, my wife uh, grabbed it as soon as it arrived, and she still uses it all the time. She absolutely loves it. She loves the pulses because if she hasn't had her coffee in the morning, the brain might not be fully engaged, and the toothbrush pretty much tells you when it's time to move it around. And so it's very, very simple. We've taken it on vacations to a number of different places this summer for either week-long family events or going just for a quick weekend getaway. So there's lots of reasons to love Quip, and that's why we take it wherever we go when we're out of town. And, of course, at home, too. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash martini. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. 
All right, Jim, back to the Brett Kavanaugh saga for our bad and crazy martinis. Let's start with Kamala Harris. She appeared on MSNBC's Rachel Maddow program on Monday evening, talking not only about why she thinks Brett Kavanaugh needs to be impeached, but why she believes the whole Kavanaugh saga has led to a crisis of confidence in the Supreme Court. So first of all, here's Kamala Harris pretending that Christine Blasey Ford was treated very, very badly last year. There was a process by which Christine Blasey Ford, who literally had nothing to gain by coming forward, Rachel, nothing to gain. She had a perfect life. And she looked at the fact that this guy was being nominated and said, the American people have a right to know what I know. And she was treated like a criminal. Treated like a criminal, Jim. They didn't even talk to her. They had the uh, sex crimes lady ask all the questions. But it's not just about how Christine Blasey Ford was allegedly mistreated. No, 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 no. It goes way deeper than that. And when we talk about expecting that people will have a sense of respect for the system of justice, we have to recognize that the process by which he was confirmed has created a crisis of confidence in that court. Harris going on to talk about because the background investigation was uh, supposedly conducted under the auspices and the parameters of the White House. So therefore, it was a fix all the way. Uh, They covered stuff up, supposedly. And so, Jim, we can't have any trust in our judiciary now because of those dastardly Republicans. Kamala Harris is right. This this could undermine respect for the system. It's like a a state attorney general who hid exculpatory evidence for a guy on death row or something. (laughs) You know, that's the sort of thing that makes people think, hey, the, the justice system can't be trusted. You know, somebody should get right on that, Kamala Harris. But look, she kind of gives the game away here. It was kind of fascinating to see, you know, this this sudden surge of it's time to impeach Brett Kavanaugh and Dick Durbin and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, Senate Democrats are like, eh, we, we don't have the votes to impeach Trump. And the other great irony, I, I just fascinating in the past 24 hours, Gerald Nadler, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, saying, look, we can't start with the impeachment of Kavanaugh until we're finished with the impeachment of Trump. Um, the same impeachment that Nancy Pelosi insists is not happening. Uh, so what's going on here? What's, what's, what is the real motivation here? I think what's pretty clear is, I discussed this a little bit in the morning, Jolt. This is um, battle space preparation. Look, there's a five to four conservative originalist, strict constructionist, whatever term you prefer for the justices that conservatives tend to like. Five to four majority, we all know Ruth Bader Ginsburg's age and health. We all hope she you know, lives happily for many years. But look, you, know, you never know when she's going to get her ticket punched. So the possibility that Trump could replace her, you end up with a six to three majority uh, in favor of the conservative, for lack of a better term, uh, on the Supreme Court. Democrats and progressives realize, even if they win the presidency in 2020, even if they win the Senate in 2020, there's always the chance the Supreme Court will look at the legislation they're passing and say, ah, you know what? I'm sorry, that just isn't in keeping with the Constitution. I know you want to completely redo every single structure in the entire country under the Green New Deal, but that is an, you know, that you're going beyond the official powers of the government or something. You know, uh, They recognize they're a look, staring at a lot of 5-4 losses in the face and maybe even 6-3 losses in the face. So what do you do? Well, you basically argue that the Supreme Court isn't legitimate anymore, that it's not Yes, technically they're there, but Brett Kavanaugh really shouldn't be there. And when you see people, when you put a drink or two in them, they'll argue Clarence Thomas shouldn't be there too. Uh, this crisis of confidence is entirely generated by people who think they're going to lose. And surprise, surprise, it's not a legitimate institution the moment it stops ruling the way that they want. 
Um, this whole idea of respect for the system or something like, right. Like conservatives haven't had any objections to previous uh, uh, liberal Supreme Court justices who promised to call balls and strikes. So, you know, people noticed, you will occasionally see, uh, obviously John Roberts uh, switched to the, the other side quite a bit. You see a lot more variance amongst the quote unquote conservative justices. That block of four Democratic voters almost never breaks. They are a block. They all vote as one. You do not see them suddenly saying, hey, you know what? The right side of the aisle has an argument on this one. And that's where we, you know, that's what this really stems out of, is that basically uh, for conservatives, we don't know what 2020 holds. You could probably argue that between, we've had divided government for pretty much a good chunk of a generation, uh, probably going back to the Republican Revolution of 1994. That's been an era of some wins for conservatives, some wins for liberals, if you're, you know, on the left, you're, you're kind of frustrated by this. You, you have not gotten, you, you, you know exactly what society needs, the, the Green New Deal, and these stupid voters keep getting in the way of, of all these great ideas that you have by not voting for the right candidates. Uh, and now you're afraid the Supreme Court is going to keep citing that pesky, dusty document that's over in the National Archives, say, mm, sorry, this idea doesn't comply with that. You can't do this anymore. So what do you have to do? Well, one idea is you court pack. You say, we're just going to you know, put more and more justices on the court in order to make sure that we have the votes that we want. Um, or alternately, you just say, hey, you know what? The Supreme Court doesn't really count anymore because we don't like the justices that are on it. Because that never crossed the mind of any conservative over the last couple of generations, Greg. Happy Constitution Day, Jim. <laughs> For now. Constitution so. Memorial Day. <laughs> yes. Remember it? Wasn't it great? Yeah. Well, it might not be too long before that's actually a reality. Wow. Well, hopefully John Roberts will behave in the near future and that we'll be able to push that off into the future. Just was great. You know, we used to feel this way about Kennedy. You know, what side of the bed did he get up this morning? Did somebody cut him off in traffic and put him in a bad mood? You know, God, there's always one swing justice where it's always like, I, I think that the Constitution actually says this, but I'll be really unpopular if I say so. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, the Constitution says X, but everybody I know in Washington, D.C. legal circles says not X. And so how, how do I balance that? That should be an easy answer, but sadly, it's not. That's one advantage uh, the libs have on us. I don't know too many cases where they wake up in the morning and go, man, what was fill-in-the-blank thinking today? Where's so- their suitor? Where, where's their <laughs> guy who they appoint? And all of a sudden, like, wow, that guy turned out to be really way more conservative than this <laughs> Hasn't happened since Wizard White. So correct. It did. It did happen way back in it. You know, we're going to argue too many concussions from when he was playing football. <laughs> Let's move on to our crazy martini now and stick with our Brett Kavanaugh coverage because, of course, the thing that was the crazy martini yesterday was the story in the New York Times, mainly designed to bolster the allegation from Deborah Ramirez, which is quite a stretch. If you remember how that was covered last year, the New York Times wouldn't even touch her allegation. Now two of their reporters are basically doing a whole book on it, practically. And uh, they threw in one little other anecdote, but forgot to mention that the supposed victim in that particular anecdote doesn't remember it and had nothing to say about it. So there was a New York Times correction to that story. And then the two authors... Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly appeared on Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC on Monday night, because if you want to appear right down the middle and not having an agenda of any kind, you'll appear on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell to explain your story, of course. But uh, here's the uh, exchange. In your draft of the article, did it include those words that have since been added to the article? It did. 
It, it did. did. So somewhere in the editing process, those words were Yeah, trained. I mean, I think what happened actually was um, that, you know, we had her name. And, and, you know, the Times doesn't usually include the name of the right. victim. And so I think in this case, the editors felt like maybe it was probably better to remove it. And in removing her name, um, they removed the other reference to the fact that she didn't remember okay, it. Okay, so, so the way in your draft for the Times, you used basically the exact words yes, that are in the did. book that I deliberately left off the name exactly. because that passage begins with the name. Yes. And so in their removal of the name, they ended up removing the whole what sentence. follows it. Yes. And I, I mean, so I think it was just sort of an editing, you know, done in the haste of, uh, in the editing process, as you know, for were closing you, the section. Were you involved in the decision to amend this and do the correction on the addition online to the piece? We discussed it. Yeah. I mean, we think we felt like this, there was so much heat. You know, there's so much, everyone has been kind of seizing on various aspects of this that we certainly didn't want this to be an issue anymore. And we certainly never intended to mislead in any way. We wanted to give as full a story as possible. Everyone's seizing, Jim. Republicans are pouncing. And uh, there's even more to the story because, of course, the supposed victim doesn't remember any of it. So that's a problem. So they've basically said now that she was rip-roaringly drunk. So, of course, she doesn't remember it. And we've also found out now that Pogrebin was uh, at Yale at the time and was roommates with a woman named Kathy Charlton, who uh, was very active in anti-Kavanaugh efforts during last year's confirmation process. So the web has many tangles to it. What do you make of the latest? You know, Greg, um, it's really very rare. It's, it's a very odd set of circumstances in which basically the authors of this book, New York Times reporters, are saying, uh, well, look, it's a book excerpt. It's not a report. That's why it didn't go through the traditional editing process. Um, this is certain to be a continuing controversy. In fact, as we are talking, Greg, uh, they're apparently holding a press conference with their editors out in front of the New York Times building. Uh, I actually have a live feed right now. It's on C-SPAN and um, the editors are about to say, oh no, oh, oh, New York Times editors, look out for that bus. <laughs> oh no, they, the reporters threw the editors under the bus there. That's, that's really unfortunate. You know, Greg, they're going to feel that one in the morning. <laughs> you know whose name is on this right you know, everybody, this idea by the way this haste of editing when was this book finished are they you know like somebody's running into the newsroom hey look here's here's the final copy of the book quick throw it in there we don't have time to sort out you know and it just so happened that there was this up oh, snafu we just happened to leave out the part where the alleged victim doesn't remember any of this happening oopsie as we've said earlier in the week what when do they make the errors in the other direction? <laughs> when does some Democrat get their reputation torn to shreds over, oh, we forgot to put that part into the article, even though we knew it? Um, deeply frustrating. I wrote today's morning, Jolt, but there are former New York Times folks who are like, this looks really bad. It does not make a lot of sense. And, and look, I think maybe the New York Times seems to think that there's this internal set of rules in which, you know, news articles are judged by one standard of accuracy and reporting and, and fact-checking. Uh, news analysis has a slightly looser term. You can put more opinion into it. A book review, the, the author is allowed to make more assertions that are not necessarily factually supported by what's in the piece. Uh, and by book review excerpts, hey, we're just saying this is what the book says. We're not verifying it. We're not... But... <laughs> First of all, if that's the case, there is no way the New York Times can run a book excerpt of a book done by two New York Times reporters, and they have not had, uh, and, and basically say, this isn't the same as New York Times reporting. Everybody's going to see it as New York Times reporting. And for you to say, well, look, we can't verify it, or, well, it turns out there's other information that we didn't put in there, and, you know, 
got taken out through the editing process and oh, oopsie, what an accident. You know, people aren't going to buy into that. This once was a really reputable reputation or institution. People trusted the New York Times. Now they should not because of stuff like this. And the other thing that kind of is just, you know, uh, nagging at this, and it's, it's kind of a, a fair question. It's a broader question. Look, these were two reporters who were covering the Kavanaugh fight as it was happening in 2018. Well, apparently one of them went to law school, went to Yale with him. Another one grew up close to him. They kind of knew him. That's, that's fine. You know, look, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that all of this is being driven by some sort of personal animosity. Although, again, I think it's kind of interesting to learn this this late in the process. But here's the other thing. You've got a reporter who, whose day job is for the New York Times. Then in their spare time, they're writing books. And let me emphasize, Greg, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with people who work for news institutions writing books in their spare time. But as they're doing their reporting for the book, let's say, let's say you found a really good scoop. Do you hold on to it for the book and you don't put it in the New York Times? If I'm the New York Times editor and I knew you had some sort of really great scoop and you were saving it for your book, uh, and of course, that scoop ended up, you know, three months past, six months past, you know, nine months, a year passes. You know, I'd be a little irritated with that. You, you had a really good information and you decided to reward your book publisher instead of the person who's giving you your paycheck as your day job. Um, and I'm sh I know this sort of thing has happened occasionally with uh, Bob Woodward's books and stuff he does for the, the Washington Post. And stuff. That's a little bit of a vaguer area. Um, but here's the other thing. These reporters have a vested financial interest in the Kavanaugh confirmation fight, one, dominating the news, two, generating as much discussion as possible, and three, being seen as controversial as possible. And you start to wonder at some point, do you end up having a financial incentive for the news to be covered a certain way? And does that start to seep into your reporting? And I, you know, I think that's a fair question to ask in these sorts of circumstances. Um, it's a bigger, broader one. I would never want to see the journalistic institutions of the world say that their reporters can't write books or something like that. But if what you're writing about for your book and your beat are synonymous, it's probably easier to see yourself getting into circumstances like this where you end up with a conflict of interest. And I think this will, uh, uh, it'd kind of be good to see journalists act a little bit more responsibly when there's something like that. Another probably comparable good example, Shattered, the book was about the Hillary Clinton campaign written by Jonathan Allen and another reporter for The Hill. They knew all throughout fall of 2016 that there was a lot of things going wrong in the Hillary Clinton campaign. That they were reporting Florida's not going to win. That they were reporting uh, that unions were saying we don't have enough, uh, that Michigan doesn't look like a sure thing. We can't find yard signs in Iowa. There's no enthusiasm up in this upper Midwest. There were all kinds of flashing red lights inside the Hillary Clinton campaign. But Jonathan Allen and the other reporter couldn't talk about it in any of their other publications until the book came out. So all of a sudden you're reading Shattered in, I think it was, you know, spring, uh, you know, late winter or spring of uh, 2017. And you're, you're, I don't know about you, Greg, I'm looking at this like, well, if I'd known this, I would not have been nearly as surprised by Trump's victory because I, you know, we all assumed that the Hillary Clinton campaign was running smoothly because no one was reporting it because the people who were covering the Hillary Clinton campaign had made deals to keep all the good juicy stuff in their book stuff, which would come out after election day. Which may have actually helped Trump, because if uh, yeah. <laughs> the alarm had sounded publicly, they might have actually done something about it. But uh, fascinating to uh, see this dichotomy here, because, uh, you know, if your straight news reporting job makes you act in a certain way, and then your book writing makes you act in another way, and then when you try to put those together, it's almost like you're between two scorpions. I was going to say you get the persona <laughs> of a podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> a little bit of reporting, a little bit of personal stuff. People yeah. know how focused I am. If anyone needs me, I'm just going to be over in the corner fuming about Adam Gase. <laughs>
You've got a few days to do that. I'll leave you to yourself. Jim, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our friends over at Quip. Get that Quip toothbrush starting at $25. Get the first refill pack of brushes free at getquip.com slash martini. And tune in Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.